if that comes into play, then there could be a competitive advantage. There could be certain criteria that the company that you are a supplier for is trying to meet and you're just not aware of. Maybe they're telling you, but maybe they're not. And so then you're just going to get excluded. And so it's an issue that you have to think about. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore, and today we're going to dive deep into the critical intersection of law, ESG, and racial equity with John Jerrica Hodge, a partner at Catton and co-chair of their ESG risk and investigations practice. In a time when race-based programs are facing significant legal challenges, John Jerrica's role in guiding companies through these complexities while maintaining their ESG and DE&I commitments is more vital than ever. As a legal expert in the space, a pioneer educator in racial equity audits, and a co-author of an upcoming book on ESG, John Jerrica brings a wealth of knowledge to today's discussion. John Jerrica, it is great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Adam, thank you so much for having me today. Very excited to be here and, 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 and join you. But before we get started, I have this tiny, tiny disclaimer that well, I need you, to give. You are uh, a lawyer, so we understand. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a show. Right. A we would all be disappointed if you didn't give us a disclaimer. <laughs> so so here goes and, and and I'll keep it very brief. Everything that I'm going to share with you today, I'm not giving legal advice and I'm not intending to establish any attorney-client relationship with any of the listeners or with you today. But with that, that's it. I'm ready to kind of dive in. Let's dive in. So tell us a little bit about you, how you got here. How did you get to where you are right now with your firm? So it and time flies. I've been at Catton as of December 5th, it'll be seven years. And during that time, I've mainly handled a wide variety of internal and, and governmental investigations, corporate compliance and ethics work, and, and then appellate litigation across industries. And that work morphed into ESG beginning last year. At that point, I, along with India Williams, who is my co-chair of the practice, we realized that our clients were beginning to have a number of ESG-related needs that simply weren't being met at the time. And so our thought, our thought was, why not start a group to kind of formalize the advice that we're giving out to clients. And, and, and just to kind of even take a step back from that, just in case you're interested, my co-chair and I, India, we go back to college. Um, India and I went to college together. We then went to law school together as well. And although we separated for a bit to work at different firms, we're now together. And um, we started to teach an, a course on ESG at our alma mater, University of Alabama. And so it focused on the role of racial equity audits in the ESG paradigm. 
We then, after teaching that course, we then contracted for publisher for the ESG book that you referenced earlier. And that then led to us also teaching a course that we're now teaching actually right now. I just had class last night on racial equity audits and human capital management in the, again, in the ESG paradigm. And so now we're working together. We're at the same firm um, and we're really kind of focused on trying to meet the, the, the myriad of ESG related issues that are coming up for our clients, both in the U.S. and, and abroad. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's huge. And we try not to make this show political, but I do have to say go dogs. So other than that. Oh, you really hurt my heart. Oh, gosh, I was starting to like you, Adam. <laughs> I had to get that in there. Oh, my goodness. But it's yes. fair. It's fair. You guys have that over us right now. Right now. and it's But it's been a long time getting here, let me tell you. Woo, there are some years I just didn't even turn the games on. So anyhow. <laughs> like, did we turn into a sports show? What was this? I thought this was business. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, no, that that's great. And I love seeing that ESG is starting to become a collegiate course, right? And we're starting to explore that now and getting these young minds acclimated to these conversations. Because I know about, what, four or five years ago when ESG and CSR really started kind of coming on the scene, right? Everybody's like, well, I get DEI, I get supplier diversity, but... Are we now tracking recycling? What's going on here? Right. And so, <laughs> and it was interesting. So at the time, I was a supplier, a director of supplier diversity in a bank. And that was a question I was getting. It was, they were like, so what are we doing? So that's, that is really great. Right. And, and, and to, and to get them acclimated to that, give us a little bit kind of behind that. I know that's kind of an, an off script question. And this is, this is what I'm known for on this show. Right. Listening to what you guys have to say. Love to hear just a little bit more about that class, because I think that's very exciting to hear that that's on syllabi now. So I am happy to talk about the class. I will refrain from talking about national championship games. OK, um, fair enough. That's, that's fair. I will make sure to <laughs> avoid that topic. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the very refreshing things uh, that I find about ESG is that it's such a cross-generational topic. If you're really going to do it well, you really have to, ESG is about being inclusive. And so you want to bring in not just, you're not just looking at racial diversity, looking at age diversity, gender diversity, all of it. You're being as, as inclusive as you can. And so what is refreshing is that when we are with the students, you really get a broad range of ideas and they really are, are, are pushing the movement in a way that is exciting to see. And, and I can't wait to see what the ESG movement is going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And, and so one of the, one of the, I, I think what I'll share about the class um, specifically is what we found to be one of the most interesting part of the class um, for, for students. And that is we actually have them go in and they prepare a racial equity audit pitch for companies. And we found that to be, yeah, so, and, and we give them broad range um, because we will have spent the course walking them through, here's 
here's the cost-benefit analysis of of doing a racial equity audit. Here's the nuts and bolts of doing one. Um, here's how do you, what do you do once you've done it? What's the next step? Is, is it a one and done? And, or are there other considerations to have in place? And so what we like for students to do is we give them free reign. You pick your industry, you pick your company, and you go in and explain to the company, here's why you should consider a racial equity audit. And here's how I would propose doing it. And here are the benefits to your company of doing it. It's enlightening for us to see, but we have these conversations, India and I, and I do just as, as part of our workday, but to see students come in and to see the perspective that they bring to it, it's exciting. I can't wait for the day where I am introducing some of my students to companies so that they can just get the benefit of what, these are their consumers. These are maybe potential employees at some day. And so for them to be able to have that insight, it's just been so rewarding to, to get that in, to get that insight from my students. And you brought up a really interesting point on that, right? And you just touched it on, on a second, right? That these are their company's future consumers. And I know in the study that I have done and, and talking about the upcoming consumer market, right? So these these young professionals that are in college. It's no longer brand loyalty like maybe our parents and our grandparents had. So I have I've done work in the commercial space. And as long as long as it had a certain label on it, they bought it without thinking about it. Right now, though, it seems that the next generation of consumers is doing a lot more research. Like, what are you doing on the DEI front? What are you doing on the equity front? Right. What are some of your policies? What are you doing in the way of ESR? So I think that's a very important point to make sure is in the forefront of people's minds is like the sentiment of the consumer is changing and we as corporate America really need to be sensitive to it. So I love that you brought that up. But in your work though, with helping companies, so we'll move from the classroom now into the office, right? And you're helping companies navigate some of the legal dimensions of ESG. And I think this is fascinating because a lot of people don't realize the legal undercurrent of ESG, right? And how it's growing. So kind of walk us through why that is so critical in today's world. Tell us a little bit more about what you guys do at your firm in this area. I think this is great. One of the things that I like about just the ESG practice generally is just the sheer variety of it. No one client has had the same issue. Perhaps it may be in, in, in the same, I'll just broaden it out to say the family of issues, but it's not the same exact issue. So the, the approach that we take to any ESG matter that comes in is we really focus on partnering with our clients wherever they are on the ESG, ESG journey. And it is a journey because at, there's no company that has mastered ESG. Everyone is trying to get to a certain level. And so some of our, some of the companies we speak with, they are very, very ESG savvy. They've, they've implemented the policies, they've implemented the procedures, they are, are, are doing the monitoring. They, they feel comfortable and, and, and they are near the forefront of, of the space. And there are others who are, are new to the ESG space. Perhaps Maybe they thought ESG was going to be a fad or, or, or maybe fad. it just wasn't an yeah. issue. Right. <laughs> right. No, it's so true. Yeah, that, yes. that wasn't that. Yeah, that, that was a, a, a question. People were like, well, how much longer is ESG around? <laughs> how much do I and really so, have to pay attention to this? Yeah. <laughs> 
yes, we are now all paying attention to it, Adam. We are now. No, it's so true. I remember when this first came out, I I know the supplier diversity professional over at one of the big consultancy firms, right? And she's up there talking. She's like, yeah, so now we're doing uh, ESG. And she starts to go into, I'm like, that is such a you thing. It'll never hit the bank. Like two years later, I'm like, well, crud. Here it is at my doorstep too. I probably should have listened to her. So yeah, you're right. A lot of people sit there and go, eh, that's not hitting me. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, hmm, here it is. So that's a good point. Yes, but but I I like working with companies at both ends of the spectrum and, and those in between. And here's why. Because no matter where you are on the ESG spectrum, we want to get you to where you want to be. Because no one is, or rarely have I, rarely have I interacted with a company. Actually, I'll say never have I interacted with a company that says, I want to stay at the status quo. Like, we're not looking to move up. We're not looking to move down. Let's just keep it where, where we are. And so that's what we do. We really try to, to, to help companies identify whatever their goals are in the ESG space and then meet them. And so the work that we've done has ranged. It's, it's very broad because our team has a broad skill set. So we've helped companies with creating ESG programs. And by that, I mean drafting that policies, identifying their goals, putting in the procedures so that they can then achieve whatever their goals may be, which is a bit vague. And that's intentional because each goal is going to be different. Some people may want to hit, some people may want to focus on on resources. Some people may want to focus on the social side of things. It, It I respect both, and I, I we try to help them meet whatever they may want to meet. Other times, we've assisted clients in, in litigation. So there have been several lawsuits where clients, where, where plaintiffs are, are challenging supply chain issues and whether supply chains are meeting whatever the company's sustainability-related statements about the supply chain may be. And so whether it may be our products are 100% sustainable, well, they want plaintiffs are looking at your supply chain to see if that actually is actually accurate. And so we've worked on that. We've worked with doing risk assessments, helping companies figure out in the ESG space, here are the high risk, here are the moderate risk, and here's the low risk. And, and, and helping companies figure out what do they need to do, particularly when you're thinking about the number of, of cases that are coming out in the ESG space, particularly when you think about the, gosh, it, it seems like the never-ending amount of legislation that is coming out on, on various ESG topics. Yes. Yes. Don't we all need coffee all the time to keep up? I do. And so it, <laughs> it's, it's just a... It's, it's a huge space, but that's what we try to do. And it's all individualized to each company. Sure, of course, of course. But, you know, I think you, you you touched on several key things, right? And a lot of our, our show's an interesting mix when you look at at our listening base, right? So we have a lot of folks that are in the corporate America world right there in the Fortune 500 scene, and they're sitting there listening to you. And I'm, I'm betting they're saying, yep, that's right, right on, right? We, we are living this life right now. but Another portion and a good portion of our listeners are small business owners, specifically diverse business owners. And they might be sitting there going, well, that's a corporate America thing. And I'm just this little 10 man, $15 million shop. I don't really need to worry about it. Talk to us. Talk talk to that group for me. Here's why it matters. And I will give 
I'll give a couple of examples for, for why it matters. So, <laughs> hey, I, I like to please, Adam. I well, like you are a lawyer, so uh, you're used to presenting <laughs> evidence and, and uh, that type of thing. So it's fantastic. <laughs> so let's go back on a journey a little bit in the past for ESG. At one point in time, earlier in the ESG phase, there was a question as to whether ESG was a public company issue. And so by that, I mean, this is something that companies who have shareholders need to concern themselves with, particularly when you think about with racial equity audits. It's not something that private companies need to think about. That turned out to not be the case because there was research that came out that shows that variety of things that companies that embrace ESG are, are, are more profitable than those that do not. There was also research about if uh, a company had more was more ESG compliant in the event they went to bankruptcy, they were able to get out of bankruptcy faster and on better terms if they had ESG more embedded in there. Yeah, there, 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 there was this research that came out and there was so much research on this such that it wasn't just ESG didn't just become a concern for public companies. It also became an issue for private companies. And so why is that relevant for a private supplier, maybe five, 10 employees, 15, whatever you want to, however you want to describe a smaller supplier? Right. Because that depends on the industry. But yeah, gotcha. Yeah, it depends on the industry. Some people have said small and it's like 500. I'm like, wow, I didn't really think that was small. But I, yes, it depends <laughs> on the industry. <laughs> Here's why it matters. You're going to, by just the fact that you're a supplier, you're working with a company and that company, whether it is public or private, is going to be reporting out to someone on who they in turn work with, their suppliers, you, small, smaller, or however you want to frame it, supplier. So you're having to report out to that company. And so whether it is you're certifying that you meet certain criteria or, 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 or whether the company actually asks you to fulfill to complete a questionnaire yearly, or they just know who you are and they report on their own out. There's someone who cares about what you're doing because it impacts their day-to-day -day operations. And by day-to-day -day operations, I don't mean just like how they operate. I'm really kind of focusing in on their bottom line, and they may be making certifications to the people who also provide them with funding. And so, if that comes into play, then there could be a competitive advantage. There could be certain criteria that the company that you are a supplier for is trying to meet and you're just not aware of. Maybe they're telling you, but maybe they're not. And so then you're just going to get excluded. And so it's an issue that you have to think about. So here's the other, here's the other reason, just to kind of finish the case. There's legislation out there that is requiring that, that requires companies to actually look at their supply chain. So one example is, let's take one of the most popular examples out there, the, the German Supply Chain Act. And so I won't go into the details of it, but like just at a very high level, it requires companies to look at their supply chain and report on certain ESG-related aspects of their supply chain, which could include your listeners. I'm not familiar with where they're operating, but you don't have to operate in Germany for it to have an impact on you. There are many companies that we've spoken with and they don't have operations there, but because they fall somewhere in the supply chain, it's an issue for them that they now have to comply with. And so perhaps maybe you don't care about it personally, 
that's fine. But but to the extent that you think that it may not impact your bottom line, your financial performance, your competitive advantage, that may not be the case. You may want to take a closer look. And that's why it matters. I love it. And I love that last example, right? And that really speaks to something that I know Chloe and I have talked about a lot on this show, something I talk about when I mentor small business owners, and that is before you go chase a client, you need to do a risk analysis on them, right? Not that not that a company like a Home Depot is going to go out of business, but you need to know what is the risk that you're assuming by doing business with them, right? And you might be saying they're going, well, I'm only supplying the small little widget to them and it doesn't really matter, but it does because that example you just brought up because Home Depot does operate internationally and you could be pulled into that. You need to be aware of these things. So love that example. Love it, love it, love it. So, but everybody is talking about what's going on on the Hill and especially around DE&I, right? That seems to be, I, I see articles at least once a week on that hitting some of the major news channels. So what do you think some of the in-house legal teams should be doing in their approach to their organization's DEI initiatives, particularly when it kind of comes to programs like supplier diversity, which are centered around minority preferences and grants. So what's what what do you what have you seen on that? What is some of your kind of insight if you can share that with us? Yeah. So there as you mentioned or as you alluded to, there's <laughs> Gosh, this is such a rapidly evolving area. It is. It really is. And everybody's trying to get their arms around it. Yes, they are. They are. And I I feel for people who are dealing with this day in, day out. Here are the steps that I would take. And and here here's here's the advice that that I would give out. Because and when you're ever you're dealing with an area like this that is moving at such a rapid pace, the key is going to be getting getting a grasp on on what's happening. And both what's happening both in your organization, which is easier to do if you're dealing with a smaller operation, um, but if you're dealing with the larger your organization gets, then the harder and the more difficult it is to make sure that you're aware of what's happening on the ground and what's happening in all the very areas um, that you may have operations. So when the Supreme Court came out with the affirmative action ruling on its face, that was university admissions, and some have made the argument that that's it. Like it should not be applied out. You cannot extrapolate it out. But we have a concurrence in in that case that says, and I'm paraphrasing here because I'm not the Supreme Court justice, but it par- paraphrase simply said that yes, we're dealing with admissions right now, but the law that would govern corporate compliance programs, why would we apply the law differently? Just because it's a different the different statute, the language is similar. Um, and, and so using that reasoning, many have argued that, and a number of companies, and this is what is causing a lot of companies a bit of angst, in addition to all the other things that are happening. But but that is, that means if, if, you're, if the Supreme Court would apply the same reasoning, then that suggests that perhaps corporations, private corporations, need to also extrapolate out the Supreme Court's reasoning to to what they're doing, whether it's supplier diversity programs, whether it's grants, minority preferences, scholarships, anything in that panoply of options and and programs that are out there. And so if if that's the case, and then on top of that, because let's, why should things be that easy, right? On top of that, you have 
attorney, state attorney generals that have, that have sent out the letter saying that the Supreme Court has come out with this decision in affirmative action. We are going to be scrutinizing race-based programs. And so, which again would fall into the minority preferences, grants, supplier diversity issues. And then you have on the opposite end, some state attorney generals who have come out and have said the opposite. So it's just a, 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 a it's just a broad range of, of legal viewpoints. And that's not even taking into account the the number of lawsuits that have been filed. And let's not even count demand letters and how courts are coming out on this. So that's the situation that, that in-house legal teams are, are faced with, right? Don't you want to be them, Adam? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad that uh, I did not go to law school. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a way to... I'm not going to say eliminate your risk because we're in we're in the position of minimizing risk as much as we can based on your company's risk profile. Yeah, I was about to say that's my other favorite term. You don't eliminate, you mitigate. Yes, yes. Mitigation is a favorite word for us. Let's stick with that. How, how, how do we mitigate that risk? Well, well, first is going to be identifying what you're, what are you doing as an organization? And that may seem like a very silly thing to say, but you would be surprised by the number of times that a company may have a policy or a procedure and that's just on the books. Maybe it hasn't been updated in years, so it's a dusty policy. Oh, yeah, there's, there's plenty of those out one. there. <laughs> there are, there are. And let's when you have an area like supplier diversity and other DEI initiatives that are getting so much focus right now, you don't want that. So you want to know what is actually happening. Like, what are your policies and procedures? And then even more important than that, what, what are you, are you actually following them? Or are, are those just paper only? And then on top of that, you'll want to know what are you actually saying about it? So it's kind of the three layers. What are the policies and procedures? Are you following them? And then the third being, how are you describing them? Some people like to put them on their website. Some people, it's something that they just discuss verbally in meetings. However you do it, you want to make sure you have a strong grasp of what's being said and put out there. Because that's frankly how lawsuits are popping up. People are looking at what what is being said publicly. So First, you want to do that. Once you've done that, then have to find some way of staying abreast of what's happening. You'll want to know the affirmative action case. You'll want to know the state AG letters I mentioned. But then you're also going to want to know about the court rulings that are happening um, in various states right now, particularly because jurisdictions are not going to rule the same on some of these issues. Um, and, and so you're going to have going to have district court decisions. They're going to go up on appeal. And my prediction, which I feel you should never do predictions, right? But I'll, I'll do it just this, just this once, right. is that I'll look back at this six months from now and I'll be like, what, what was I saying? <laughs> but this I feel fairly comfortable saying. The way this is shaping up, do not be surprised when there's another petition before the Supreme Court to get a case bringing corporate DEI programs, whether it's going to be, a, and I'm not saying that it's going to for sure be a supplier diversity issue. It could be perhaps just a DEI goal or, or, or another DEI program. It could be any of those, but 
just broadly speaking, a corporate DEI issue before the Supreme Court again. Now, whether they take it, I am not going to predict that. But I do feel very safe saying that there's going to be a petition because there are too many cases coming up. And it, it could be a good thing because it could provide the clarity that we don't yet have at the moment. There are arguments on both sides, but we could get clarity on that. But because you don't have that yet, you're going to want to know, you're going to want to monitor what's happening in the jurisdictions where you operate. So let's say you're, well, actually, I won't name any states. That's not safe. So you're going to want to look at where do you operate and and what are courts saying where you operate. And once you've done that, then you want to apply those cases. You're going to want to apply those cases to your DEI programs. And not just what you're doing, but actually trying to figure out what is the crux of whatever your DEI goal is. Because perhaps your program is one of those dusty programs, and so it's not actually achieving the goal that you have now. And so once you actually figure out what your goal is, then you can figure out, do I need to tweak my language to actually more closely mirror what I'm trying to achieve in my supplier diversity program. And perhaps if my if for some reason let's suppose the language that you're using is the language that's been at issue in any of the lawsuits, then the question becomes should you change it? And that is going to be a risk analysis for each company because some companies think I don't care if I get sued if I'm going to win. Other companies don't want the lawsuit at all. So exactly. It's a, it's a, but it's a risk question. And I respect both. I respect everyone. So if, if you don't want the lawsuit at all, that's a different calculus. If, if, if you don't care about the lawsuit being filed, but you're, if you think that there's a high probability that you'll win, it's a different thing. It's a different risk calculus, but you have to decide individually for your company. And then that will dictate whether there's a language change. And so that. It's just some of the steps to take. There are a lot of steps, but that's because this is just a rapidly changing. And then you're going to want to, everything that I just said, you're going to want to do it again very soon because there will be more court cases out and more decisions for you to, to factor in. Right. Yeah. This is not a, a one and done exercise. Right. No. Wow. Well, Jerica, I have to tell you, this has been a fantastic conversation with you today, and I can't believe we're this far into our show. And I'm like, wow, where has the time gone? This has been fantastic. So, but before we do wrap up with you today, I'd like to ask you one kind of final closing question. And that is with your deep understanding of ESG and racial equality, which has just shown through today. And thank you so much for sharing with us. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. How do you see some of these concepts that we've discussed evolving and influencing corporate practices in the next few years? So, again, putting on your crystal ball and getting your in, insight on this, where do you think we might be in the next few years? Where does this where is this discussion when we have you on three years from now? Three years from now, I am very comfortable saying that ESG is going to continue to be a primary of primary concern for companies. And by that, really focusing in on perhaps not saying ESG itself. But the principles underlying ESG, very comfortable saying that it's going to continue to be an, an issue for companies in the next in the next three years and even beyond that. And and why why is that? That's in part because of some of the research that that I referenced earlier. Of there's research saying that ESG impacts the bottom line. I 
there, I recognize that, that there, that isn't accepted everywhere. Some people have contrary views. And again, very inclusive. I respect all views. But there's a su- sufficiently large population across the globe that falls into the camp of ESG is a concern for us. And there's enough legislation out there that is perhaps it's in one country, but it's trickling outside of that country. So it has extraterritorial impact and, it, and it's impacting other um, uh, companies in different countries that, and because we're rarely, if ever, at the moment, are, are, are companies only impacted by what, by what happens in their locality now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so that's true. Because, because that is just continuing to, to, to morph and the lines are becoming so blurred, this is going to be an issue three years from now and beyond that. And so companies are just going to have to figure out what companies are going to have to figure out how does that how how do they weave ESG into their company mission their their company goal and their operations in a way that is feasible for them because it's going to be different for everyone because we're all walking this ESG journey. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more. Right. I mean, the one constant we do know is that this is a not going away. And then B, it's just going to become more and more a 360 kind of encompassing view. So, wow, more to come. I know you guys are going to be really busy <laughs> over there at your firm still working through this. So that is great. And again, just thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Jajerica. Your your knowledge, your personality is just uh, amazing. And we could not have been more pleased to have you with us. And to our listeners, make sure to connect with us on LinkedIn. We love to to talk with you guys too. And if you're looking for us, that's Adam A. Moore and then at Chloe Goodry Reed and then our guest today at John Jerrica Hodge. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback. Check out our previous shows and stay tuned for next time. Talk to you all again soon. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.